Welcome into the Friday morning long-form episode here on Mining Stock Daily. I'm your host, Trevor Hall. Thank you so much for tuning in. It was a great week for metals, <laughs> commodities in general, all around the metals complex. Copper, gold, silver all saw a nice rebound and some buying midway through the week after the CPI numbers hit the tape early Wednesday morning. And it lifted a lot of the gold and silver equities and the copper equities uh, along with the juniors. So sigh of relief a little bit. Happy to welcome in Dominic Frisbee this week for the long form episode. Uh, Dominic is uh, kind of walks a fine line between comedian and also financial analyst and commentator. So it's interesting. I ask him a lot about how he approaches financial markets and comedy, especially in junior mining. It's kind of uh, is it a comedy or sometimes even a tragedy? So great conversation with Mr. Frisbee. We talk gold, even a little bit of zinc. So we'll leave it to that. Special thank you to Arizona Sonoran Copper, Western Copper and Gold, and Fireweed Metals for their continued support of the podcast. And if you haven't already, please hit that subscribe, like, or leave a comment uh, anywhere you get the podcast or on our YouTube channel. Thank you so much for doing that as we continue to build this out. All right, everybody, have a wonderful weekend. Oh, programming note, next week will be a little bit of a off week as I am taking time away with the family for vacation. Have a great week. Talk to you soon. Greetings, everybody. Welcome into the Mining Stock Daily long-form episode for this week. I'm really excited to welcome in this guest. He is, uh, by day, he's market uh, analyst, commentator, trader, investor, and by night, he's a comedian. Uh, he lives over in our over in the UK, and he writes uh, a great Substack called The Flying Frisbee. He also has a YouTube channel called Money Markets and More with himself, Mr. Dominic Frisbee. Dominic, welcome to Mining Stock Daily. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much, Trevor. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. Uh, you and I had a, had the chance of meeting in Frankfurt at the Deutsche Goldmess this past spring. Uh, it's great to kind of get to know you. And I said during that dinner, I was like, you need to come on the podcast. We're finally making this happen. Uh, I, I would really, before we kind of get into a lot of the finance and, and markets and what's happening and how you're approaching this. I would love to get a little bit better understanding of just how you came to be <laughs> the flying Frisbee uh, comedy yeah. and markets. Uh, there's not a whole lot of comedy in markets. Sometimes, sometimes you get your heart broken. That's not funny. Well, <laughs> you get your heart broken in comedy as well, but I, I, I don't really know how it happened, Trevor. It's just one of those kind of accidents of fate. Really. It goes all the way back to the, early noughties um my dad and i had this project this musical that we were working on called kisses on a postcard and we had a bit of money and we were trying to figure out how to turn that bit of money into a lot of money so that we could bring that musical into the west end and uh, i started looking around and i saw that um it, it just seemed to me that commodities were the place to be and uh, especially gold and so but I didn't know anything about market. So I actually started a podcast as a means to meet all these interesting people that I heard talking on the internet. 
And um, the podcast proved very popular. And one of the people who I interviewed uh, was a lady called Marion Somerset Webb, who ran a magazine called Money Week. And she said, oh, you should come and write for us. And I said, I don't know what I'm talking about. And she said, it doesn't matter. And so that's how I ended up writing about commodities. And obviously, by now, I was investing in them. And um, it was a big, it was a glorious bull market in the noughties and probably taught me a lot of bad lessons um, about the dangers of mining, because in those days, everything just seemed to go up relentlessly. And, and um, so, yeah, so that's how I ended up doing it. And I, I rather enjoyed going to mining conferences. Bizarrely, I found everyone in the world of mining was a lot more open uh, than they are in the world of the comedy and the media and so on, where people are a lot more closed and they're a mo- lot more concerned about the effect on their reputation it will have if they, in- if they introduce you to X, Y, Z. In in mining, people are a lot more open, and it, I, so I, I guess all that matters is the quality of your rock and and who you are or where you're from or any of that stuff just doesn't really matter. And so I found it a lot more open and a lot less hierarchical, and I just sort of got on with it. And so I just never stopped really. And I, I and I write this Substack now called the Flying Frisbee, and it's immensely popular. And I comment on markets, and I have a paid newsletter in which I focus on natural resource stocks which is mostly mining stocks and and um it started off incredibly successfully but and then it ran into the sort of the bear market that started in the spring of last year and um but i was fairly cautious in my choices and then a couple of them have done well and so even now in this bear market it's it's doing okay and um yeah so that's how i ended up this weird double life of comedy by night and financial markets by day it's a it certainly wasn't planned it was an accident i mean investing in markets whether it's miners well i would say specifically miners in the junior sector it's a little bit of a drama and a little bit of comedy all in together just kind of depends on the mood of the day uh, you know talk to me about kind of cutting your teeth and mining uh, there's a lot you didn't know when you started and how did you, how, tell me more about your learning process through this and through your kind of your your creativity. You you find that stand-up comedy is a great equaliser. And just as you get confident and just as you think you're king of the world, something comes along and slaps you down and you have to learn the same lessons again. And I'm afraid the same happens with mining. You know, in the noughties, you could invest company. There, there just weren't that many junior mining companies in the in the early to mid-noughties. They, they, but as, the, as everything went up, they just issued so much paper and suddenly by you know, post-financial crisis by 2010, 2011, you know, everyone had a mining company. My first taste of a real bubble was that uranium bubble in, was it 2005, 2006? And just every company was suddenly a uranium company. And um, and you just realized how fake a lot of it is. And, you know, how many people are just in there to raise money and pay their own salaries. And then suddenly all these, you know, bits of moose pasture had market caps in the hundreds of millions and the CEOs were staying at the Savoy and you were like, wow, this is, there's a lot of greedy, dodgy people out there. And I actually did okay in that uranium bubble because I just thought it just got silly. So I just sold everything. But, Mm -hmm. but you know, there are other, I've just got caught in, in, I was invested in a helium company. Um, I still am. And it was an it was managed originally by a guy called Erwin Olean and he discovered these deposits or was involved in the, he didn't discover them. He was, his geologist discovered them in Arizona 
Holbrook Basin. And, you know, they started calling it the Saudi Arabia of helium and there was a structural shortage of helium. And this was a company called Desert Mountain Energy and it did incredibly well. And it went from below 50 cents almost to $5 over the course of the next Mm. few years. And Irwin stood down or was stood down and new management took over the company from within the company. And the press releases just got more and more mendacious and they just got just vague on detail. And you were like, well, what's that? And what are you saying here? And that just doesn't make any sense. And there were so many warning bells going off in my head. And, um, like I sold a bit, but I didn't sell nearly enough. And, you know, because I was thinking, I was still thinking with the attitude of, you know, when it was a $4 stock, I thought it was going to be a $10 stock and then a $20 stock. And then last week they made this announcement and then it was like $3. And I was like, I really don't like what I'm seeing here. I still didn't sell enough. And this, it just went into those, one of those grinds lower. It went from $3 to a dollar or just above a dollar. And then last week they suddenly announced they were suspending all activity at Holbrook Basin and moving to New Mexico and they blamed regulation and, 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 they'd led us to believe that all the permitting was in place. And then suddenly they said that the Arizona authorities were, were being um, recalcitrant about uh, issuing permits and tried to blame it on them. And you're just like, and now here we go. So the stock went from below 50 all the way to almost five. And here we are, and it's back below 50 cents again. And um, talk about, you know, I don't know if you've seen that new Lassonde curve that does the rounds where where it's <laughs> yeah. not the original one. It's the new one where where even, you know, it's one thing to make a discovery and it's another thing to actually get producing. And there are just, everyone just behaves like it's really easy and it can happen and it just isn't and it's just hard. And, you know, it's such a, it can be such an easy business when you get a bull market and everyone fly, everything flies. In bear markets, you know, bear markets expose truths and they expose liars and they expose frauds and they expose even projects that are only half good end up looking like they're awful. And it's, you know, it's just such a difficult business, mining and natural resources. It is so hard. I know technically helium is not mining, but you know what I mean? You've heard that same story in about a gold company, a copper company, a nickel company. It's just a yeah. hard and cruel business. And I take my hat off to people who can, especially investors who can make their money legitimately, because not only is it a difficult business because it's so capital intensive and, you know, by the time you actually get your mind producing, well, then suddenly there's a surfeit of that commodity and it's halved in price and you can't make it work. There's not only that difficult, there's the fact that the industry is so full of liars. And the weird thing is the industry actually needs liars or it doesn't need liars, but it needs promoters because you've got to get the share price up in order to raise the money to do the next set of drilling. Otherwise, your property just becomes a never ending vehicle of dilution that destroys the early investors. So it does need promoters. But unfortunately, you know, there's so much crossover between promoter and total bullshitter yeah so there's a this is kind of spurs over a couple of topics uh and i, I want to talk to you i want to table this conversation of the art of marketing and mining uh i want to I, I do want to ask you about this and get your thoughts but the first idea that popped into my mind and it just happens to be timely because i'm currently reading 
some more Edward Chancellor in, in market cycles. And you actually published a, a video a couple of weeks ago, you titled The Art of Timing Famous Market Cycles. And so watching that video mm-hmm. and then also reading some Chancellor, uh, you know, a lot of these things are kind of, you know, big, grand, macro, big market items. But I keep on trying to relate to it. Okay, how, try to figure out how does it relate to the junior mining sector? We've seen an oversupply of equities, and we've, but we're starting to a point in a, in a bear market where we're starting to see some mergers coming on. We're starting to see companies have a hard time funding just to keep the lights on. Will we see a decrease of supply of junior exploration equities? And really, where are we at as far as market timing and market cycles with exploration right now? Have you given this any thought or how do you approach this? Well, you know, if, do, you, um, just, do you remember just how much paper there was in 2011? There was just too much paper. And, you know, I'm always I'm still amazed today that central banks don't make the link between increasing the money supply and inflation. And, and you know, the more paper there is, the more you devalue it. And it just happens in junior mining, especially when markets are good. They issue too much paper. People get too greedy. It's too easy. Um, And, you know, I kind of feel like we need another bull market, that, that, that we can't be that far away from a bull market. But I also don't feel it's like we haven't hit the peak bearishness we hit in, say, 20, late 2015. Do you remember just how bad things were in late 2015? Nothing could survive. Just, mm-hmm. you know, even really good companies were dying. And then we had that bull market. It was only first six months of the year, but it was the most amazing bull market I think I've ever seen that first half of 2016. And I don't think we're quite at the point that we were in late 2015, but it does feel like we need another bull market. I mean, I just look at, there are some really good companies out there that are just so cheap now. And, you know, I follow a plat- platinum company called Teresa in uh, South Africa. And I know it's South Africa, but I mean, it's got $140 million net cash and its market caps like almost the same. And it, 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 that's not a good example. Let me, and, and its market caps bigger than that. Um, you know, Monera Alamos is another company that I follow. And, you know, I never thought that company would go below about 40 or 50 cents. And here we are, and it's 32 cents. And they've got a producing mine, which they put into production for $10 million. It's spitting out almost $10 million in net free cash flow every year. So it's in, it, it, its producing mine is covering its original capex. It's going to have two more producing mines following the same model within about two years. And it's just being beaten up by the market. Another follow another company called Manita, which is, you know, the biggest undeveloped gold project in North America, 13 million ounces. It's obviously going to be 15 or 16 million ounces when the next mineral resource estimate comes out later this year, because every drill, all their drilling um, has has been net positive. So they're expanding the resource and it's trading at $7 an ounce in the ground. And it's it's not like it's in, you know, out of Mongolia or something. It's in it's in Timmins, Ontario. And um mm-hmm. so you're like, what does that company have to do to get to but I guess the more they keep raising, the more it dilutes. And even though they bring the resource forward, they they're 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 issuing more and more paper and it's just inherently dilutive. So it's just such a difficult business to be in. And 
You know, why would you invest in a development play? Because realistically, unless it gets sold, it's not going to be producing for another 10 years. So who's got 10 years to wait for an investment to come good? There's too much that yeah. can go wrong well, that, in the interim. That's the, that's the honest trough of the Lasan curve, I think. It is the most honest trough because it does take a lot of time of those development plays to not only uh, – get the feasibility up and running, but also get the permit, the permitting uh, objection of those, of, of those mines are just so, so long. You know, yeah. And coming, coming back to cycles, I think with exploration stocks, you know, stories get tired as well as the issuance mm-hmm. of the paper stories get tired. And I just think you just got to be an early hope. There's a buzz around the stock and then just go. And, and almost within six months or a year, you've almost just got to say, you know, either this has worked or it hasn't. I've just, but, but the story's getting tired now. I've got to go. And if you take that attitude, you'll get more winners. But then occasionally you miss a total winner, like Snowline, for example. I mean, that one never seems to stop going up. And, um, you know, that's one that didn't get tired. So, I, I, you know, it's, it's just, it's, you never know, but it's 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 a really hard business. But you do have to be, a, you know, there's an obvious cycle to commodities. There's a shortage of the commodity. There hasn't been enough in um, investment. Suddenly everyone throws money at that commodity because there's a shortage. The price goes up. That encourages investment. That increases um, the supply. And then suddenly there's a surfeit of the commodity. So all the, all the mines um, – have to cut their production, they go into recession. So there's a very clear cycle with commodities. But there's also a cycle, you know, in the development of a mining stock from exploration to excitement over exploration. It's not unlike a new technology. You know, everyone gets, you know, a few uh, early adopters get very excited about this new technology. There's a lot of media hype and it goes bananas. That's what happened with the internet in the lead up to 2000. And then then it gets tired and then, you, you know, you realise that it's going to take, 10 years or whatever to get this new technology to the mainstream or to get this mind producing, whatever it is. And the whole thing just collapses and then goes sideways. And, and that's what happened with happens with mining. And, and then in the, in the meantime, stories get tired. So there's a cycle to mining. And I guess, you know, often you might say, well, buy just before they, the mine starts producing and you're like, fine. But then how many mines have you known get into production without hitch? There's just always a problem. You know, I think I've known like one in 20 actually gets producing successfully and they're usually heat leach mines. Yeah. So you, you, you've expressed a lot of interest in uh, explorers and developers here. What about the, the actual producers here, both precious and maybe base metals? Is that a place you uh, allocate some of your capital to or do you tend to stay away from producers? Well, I've got, I've got, various portfolios so i've got a portfolio of speculative and i only do speculative stupid speculative stocks in there and uh that portfolio goes up a lot and it goes down a lot and then um and i'm as you can probably tell from my mood it's not in a good place at the moment and then <laughs> but i've got a what we call here in england a sip which would be my pension plan so i think you might call that an ira or something like that in america i'm not sure mm. I don't even know what you call it in Canada, but it's my pension basically. And then I've got a, like a, I've just got two sensible accounts and I try not to touch junior mining in those accounts, but I will own big mining companies, you know, BHP or Glencore or something like that. 
Okay. Uh, you, you published a blog recently, like within the last couple of weeks about how to invest in zinc. Oh yeah. Uh, zinc is just super, uh, that price on zinc is just super ugly right now. Uh, but I will say when I met you in Frankfurt, uh, <laughs> you made me laugh because, uh, I think you told me in a group of people, like, I didn't want to come to Frankfurt and have to buy another bloody junior exploration stock, but I think you ended up doing it on the back of this zinc. I didn't buy it uh, because I just didn't have the money in my account and it's gone up. <laughs> so I should have done. <laughs> it's like up 30 or 40%, but it's a good, um, uh, it's quite interesting looking at zinc. Link, zinc, it's very rare. There's a, shortage of zinc for very long and it's very rare there's a surfeit of zinc for very long the shortage of the surfeit only seemed to last maybe a year and the noughties are slightly different but apart from that the zinc it's quite interesting it gets itself into balance quite quickly it's probably because there's a lot of a lot of zinc supply comes from recycling but um you know it's it, i mean obviously there was a bit of a surfeit which is why the zinc price has been crap for the last six months or a year I think only nickel has been worse, but and nickel has been really bad because of it was just nuts when that invasion mm-hmm. of Ukraine started. But um, you know, yeah, zinc zinc is 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 quite balanced, and that's probably why it's very hard to make money from zinc mining companies because the price never goes up that much and it never comes down that much. <laughs> that's why they, I, I yeah. get that zinc yeah. stinks thing, but but. Um, <laughs> I, th- I think with zinc, we're probably nearer the end. We're certainly end, nearer the end of the bear market than we are the beginning. Let's put it that way. How do you approach the base metals right now on the back of this, you know, reindustrialization happening in the West slowly, but surely I would, I, I might add, but also on the backs of uh, infrastructure being electrified, the push for electric vehicles. It seems like the market continues to demand more electrification. Uh, consumers demand more electrification. I know on one side, it seems like we're getting shoved this narrative down our throat from, uh, from, from governments and central banks, but the other side, it doesn't, it certainly feels like consumers are willing to go that direction and that's where demand is. And so industries looking to provide that supply. So I guess on this, on those massive, pictures of of the need for base metals how do you how do you look at the base metal complex right now with that supply demand story but also on the likelihood of recession sometime coming our way yeah um i i'm slightly ambivalent about base metals Mm. and here's the thing by the way i i don't worry that much about recessions and I don't think about them. I just think they're a media thing. You know, if we've got half a percent GDP growth one year and we've got half a percent no growth the following year, I just think in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't make that much difference. It's just a sort of media hype thing. And particularly with mining, mining's on its own trajectory anyway. Like, you know, you would you might say a lot of the 70s were recessionary, but mining did fantastic in the 70s. So, so I don't I don't think that much about recession generally. As soon as you look at the the realities of the demands and the expectations around net zero, and you look at the amount of metal required to make zero 
even happen to half the extent that the politicians want it to. You know, do you know what I mean by great? Do you, do you call it net zero in North America? Yeah, I, I think there's a number of different terms, but net zero is one of them. Yeah. And you look at the, the amount of metal that's required to make it happen. You would just be running and buying every single metal and metals producer you possibly could, because it's going to require unprecedented amounts of copper, lithium, and goodness knows how many other metals you can think of. And, but this story has been around for years now. It's not like that stories are hidden. And either the net zero just isn't going to happen and the market realizes it's total bullshit or the market thinks it's total bullshit and it's not going to happen. And, you know, base metal supplies are just going to grow and, uh, sorry, base metal demand is just going to grow and shrink kind of as it always has. That's one possibility. So it's just not going to happen or it's going to happen a little bit mm-hmm. or it's net zero is just total bullshit and it's not going to happen for that reason. And everyone knows it's total bullshit or it is going to happen. And the market has just got the pricing totally wrong. And suddenly this, we're going to have all this demand for whatever metal and there hasn't been the investment in exploration, in production and all the rest of it. And we're going to have a massive bull market. I would love the latter scenario, right. but I kind of think some, some version of the former is probably more likely. That's the pessimistic me speaking, but it, it is a possibility that, that, that the demand for metals that has been forecast will actually happen and the market was slow to believe it. But at the moment, the market does not believe net zero is going to happen. Otherwise, metal prices would be at least 50% higher than they are and probably double where they are. Dominic, let me play somewhat devil's advocate here and, and give you maybe anecdotal story of maybe it's somewhere in between where it will happen. And I think it will, it has been happening. And so I've got the, I have this, I have an uncle of mine and my uncle is like this larger than life character He's always been my, my entire life. And I remember back early two thousands, another family member bought a uh, Toyota Prius, you know, when nobody wanted them. I had a family member buy a Toyota Prius and my uncle at, you know, family gathering say, what a waste of money. Why do it? It's going nowhere. It's inefficient. All the reasons to stick with the combustion engine vehicle. So fast forward to today, that same uncle of mine has been all about the technology of electrification of vehicles, Tesla's battery packs, everything. He's like, he's all in. And so over a span of 20 years, let's say, that mentality has certainly changed. And I just use that as anecdotal evidence of why the market continues, will, will drive this. It won't be governments putting you know, time re, you know, timetables on when this is going to happen. It will be the consumers and the market which drive this research and technology down the road. And 
I, I I always think about this because this, you know, I think those those dates, the twenty thirties or whatever they say, are absolutely ridiculous because the government cannot control the market. The consumers in the market will control the demand. Uh, and so I say that, and I just think, do you? It will. I, I do think it will happen. I just I. I I don't know if it's a complete net zero, uh, but I think maybe in a lifetime it possibly could be. I don't know. Just what's your response to that? Well, I think you make a very interesting point. And, you know, one of the things about net zero that annoys me is the hypocrisy of it. And the fact that even though, you know, uh, an electric vehicle, you don't see it you know, you don't see the diesel being burnt, you don't see the petrol being burnt, it doesn't pollute the area around you. In order for that electric vehicle to exist, an unbelievable amount of fossil fuel has to be burnt somewhere, right. you know, to mine the vehicle and all the rest of it. And I think it's, I think the figure is 60 or 65,000 miles before the electric vehicle becomes carbon neutral. That's what I heard. Yeah. So that hypocrisy of the colossal amount of carbon that needs to be burnt to to realize net zero annoys me a lot on the other hand everyone i know who drives not everyone but you know the large majority i know of people i know who drive teslas say they are really good cars they love them and you know there's slightly something you know it's like having a really nice clothing label or like apple phones people are really loyal to the apple brand and so they buy apple products for the rest of their life and um it might be that once you've driven an electric vehicle you like the fact it, it doesn't matter that the fossil fuel is being burnt out of sight and out of mind you like the fact that it is not polluting your street and you also like the fact that it's a real pleasure to drive and um, like my missus has got a, a a really flashy Mercedes, and when you look at the the driving uh, the the dashboard, there are just so many buttons, mm -hmm. and you look at it and you're like, how do you know which buttons? Uh, and it, it, it there's just too many buttons, and you get used to it over a while. But it's like the difference between it, and then you go in a Tesla, and you just look at how clean and sleek it is, and it is the difference between an iPhone and a BlackBerry. <laughs> And, you know, that's a battle that the iPhone eventually won. And so it is possible, it, it may even be likely that net zero, yeah, it is driven by consumers because they prefer driving electric vehicles because ultimately with the new technology, they prove to be better. I think there's still one problem that Tesla has to get through, but it will get there is just to be able to drive for longer and to be able to charge up quicker. Yeah. Because if, for example, I wanted to drive from London to Edinburgh, which is, I don't even know, 500 miles, something like that, and it was six or seven hours, um, you know, I don't want to be delayed too long on the recharges. Yeah. Um, so that's 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 an issue. But, you know, the, 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 the battery length is getting longer and longer. And so ultimately it will solve that. So, so maybe, maybe you're right. And it, it does become a consumer-driven thing. And maybe that's the best outcome um, because, as I say, people seem to prefer – people who've gone electric seem to prefer electric. Yeah. Uh, so I, I want to kind of change the conversation. Oh, oh go ahead. Go let ahead. me carry on, Trevor. Yeah, yeah. Let me just carry on for one second. I'm just thinking, as you say. So how does that translate to metals? I guess it means that there's more demand for electric vehicles, more demand for battery metals, 
and further expansion. I mean, I wrote a piece earlier in the year. I thought lithium had gone through its hype cycle and been done. And it kind of did. It had a massive correction around about the turn of the year, if I remember rightly. But it's it's dealt with the correction and now it's moving again and lithium stocks are doing well. So, so you know, you, there, you, there could be something to what you say. Well, we, we will see, right? We will see. Um, I, I think a lot of... I've got lithium companies, so <laughs> I, want, I want it to work. <laughs> You'll often find me arguing against something because I'm in a bad mood. But but investing the other way, so well, let's say well, I, I, I I have maybe a little bit other anecdotal situation here, and it, it will require uh, an explanation from a comedian to better understand this. And so I was in the last couple of years, I you know we've been diving into into the macro, into the metals, into the money printing, into inflation, all these things that have just been hitting markets and economies right in the face. And I've always laughed with, you know, you know, my wife and my family and my friends, like, you know, I spend eight to 12 hours a day looking at these, this data, reporting on it, doing these interviews. And the last thing anybody ever wants me to do is to go to a party and have the same conversation. Nobody wants to have that conversation. And so I just like over the last couple of years, how have you approached this amongst your social circles? Have you found the same struggles amongst your friends and family? Like, yeah, Dominic, we understand. They printed seven trillions of dollars. Have a drink and fuck off. Like, <laughs> so how does a comedian really handle these things and, and try to put light to, to this to where it's a humorous and funny but also informative well i write comic songs so i write comic songs about it and i've i did a show and a book all about tax and i'm doing a show this year all about gold and so you know i can i can do that but in terms of like how you talk about it socially I guess you just got to gauge the situation at the time. You know, sometimes it depends where you are. You know, I've got cranky old gold bug mates and cranky old Bitcoin mates. And all they want to talk about is money printing and the demise of the fiat money and the evils that fiat money has enabled and all the rest of it. And I love having that conversation and I'm happy to drink lots of red wine and have that conversation into the early hours of the morning until I'm blue in the face. But then there are other times where people just do not get it. And, you know, it's a bit, there's a great quote from Satoshi Nakamoto. Um, he's, well, I, I'm now going to misquote him, but he's, he, he kind of says, you either get it or you don't. And if you don't, I don't have the, you, you, you I don't have the time to explain it to you. <laughs> and, um, you know, because there, there are some people who just don't want to hear it, as you say. And then there are others who can't get enough of it. Yeah. So how do you approach this in your comedy? And like what what is your if you are preparing a new uh comedy s- skit or set or however you want to label it and you know it's going to be with a premise of say gold or markets or finance you know where do you start create creatively like you know how do you kind of get that inspiration uh well firstly like there's two different types of comedy there's one where the audience has come to see you. So they know you and they know what you're about. And there's another where they've come to see comedy. So that might just be a regular comedy club. 
So if I went to a regular comedy club and I started talking about something really specific and niche and esoteric like gold, I'd be booed off in about two minutes. So I tend to talk, if I'm just doing a regular comedy club, I'm maybe doing a 20-minute set in a comedy club or or hosting it or whatever, I'll just do much more generic mainstream subjects. But if it's a, an audience that's specifically come to see me, then it's very different. And then in terms of writing the material, uh, I normally try and get the argument first and the story first and then put the jokes in afterwards. And if I can think of something funny to say along the way, then I do that as well. I think one of the funniest things specifically about gold are the traditional gold bugs ability to take any sort of news and use it in their bull case of why gold is everything truth and will be going higher. The latest news has been regarding this rumored BRICS new currency backed by gold uh, that came out and uh, gold Twitter was just bombarded with this news. And the next day, I think the I in BRICS India comes out and says, we are not interested. <laughs> uh, and so I guess, you know, talk about gold as a monetary metal going forward. I mean, we know it's a monetary metal, but do you, do you foresee something like BRICS having any sort of relevancy with a gold backed system? Well, there's there's a couple of things going on there. And, you know, they have been talking about it. And what they really want to do is to be able to trade without having to use the US dollar and without being dependent on the US dollar and without therefore being beholden to America and its banks. And they have the St. Petersburg International... Um, whatever it's called, International Forum, the, the Russian Davos, as it's known. <laughs> and then they've got the Shanghai Cooperative Organization, which makes up something like 40% of the world's land mass and 30% of the world's population and 20% of the world's GDP. So it's by no means insignificant. And, you know, they have all these meetups and the recurring theme is how can we trade not using the US dollar? But the problem they've got is that all those countries, like, it's just like the US dollar works. And for all America's shortcomings, people still trust America and they still trust its banks for the most part. And they know that it'll honor it and they know that it won't print too much of it, it won't devalue it and so on. Whereas, you know, you look at all some of those countries in the Shanghai Cooperative Organization, they, they don't really trust, you know, they're not trustworthy and they don't trust each other and they trust the US dollar more than they trust each other. So that's why they keep coming back to the US dollar. And the problem is designing the system. And it's all very well going, it would be gold-backed. But who keeps the gold? Mm. And every time there's a trade, what do you, do you fly the gold over from, from Kyrgyzstan to Peking and then from Beijing to Moscow? You know, how do you transport the gold? And who audits the gold and who looks after the gold? So it's really not that simple. And then can you, um, like, let's say I've got, Moscow issued new currency and I'm in, in, in New Delhi and I want to translate my Moscow currency into gold in New Delhi. Well, is it instantly transferable or not? Because for a gold standard to work, it has to be, you have to be able to instantaneously change it. So just think the practicalities of it are very difficult. 
But that having been said, if you look at the amount of gold that's made its way to China, whether by production or import, mm-hmm. um, and I've spent a lot of time auditing this, and America has 8,000 tonnes, so it says, in Fort Knox, and let's just assume it does have 8,000 tonnes. But if you look at the total gold imports to China, total gold Chinese production, and bear in mind that China exports very little gold. In fact, it's not even allowed to export its own production. 30,000 tonnes of gold has made its way to China since 2000. And 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 sorry, it's, I beg your pardon, it's like 25,000 and then you factor in the gold that was already in China. Mm. And you arrive at a figure of just over 30,000 tonnes of gold in China. And then you remember that America's official holdings are 8,000 and there's not that much gold held privately in the States because it was, um, wasn't legal until the mid-70s. There is, there is quite a lot, but 8,000 official gold in the States, 30,000 in China. Let's just say half of the gold. And remember, all Chinese mining pretty much is state-owned, or not all, but a large portion of it, certainly more than 50%. And you just go, well, let's just say half of the gold that's made its way to China is state-owned. Well, then China has twice as much gold as the US. And it, it declares a much lower figure because to declare too much would be, it would push up the price and it would be tantamount to a declaration of war. So. I do think all those nations are looking to defy, diversify their US dollar holdings and increase their gold holdings. And, you know, central, buying, central bank buying last year was the fastest it's been since the 1960s and all those stats. It's obvious all those countries uh, are increasing their gold holdings as a store of wealth. Mm-hmm. But I'm not convinced, I'm a long way from being convinced that those nations are increasing their gold holdings as a means to transact. Yeah. Uh, So it's gold's purpose. The reason we all buy it, we all buy gold as a store of wealth. We don't buy it as a medium of exchange. And I think that probably applies to those countries as well. And you have to remember, most of them are pretty authoritarian regimes and authoritarian regimes don't like gold because gold, they, it takes away their power to print. So, I'd be very surprised. And, you know, I hear all this talk about the gold-backed digital yuan, but, you know, that was supposed to be out in time for the Olympics and it never happened. So, I don't know, maybe one day, but, you know, I talk to Russians and I say, how influential is this guy, Sergei Glaziev? And they all go, he's not that big a cheese. You know, gold bugs in the West have inflated his importance in the grand scheme of things. So... He's the guy that's supposed to be designing the new gold-backed international currency. Hmm. And, you know, all those countries have used the renminbi. They've used the yuan to sell China stuff, and they've accepted yuan in exchange instead of US dollars, which in itself is a step away from the US dollar. But they haven't, with the exception of maybe Iran and Venezuela, they haven't actually used gold as a means of payment. And why would you? Why would you... pay for something with gold if you can pay for it in fiat you just wouldn't yeah it's interesting we mentioned the i india those the ties between india and the united states appear to be pretty dang strong right now uh, despite the geopolitical tensions with BRICS. but the well, every other tech company is run by an india exactly uh and the the b in BRICS, brazil is one we haven't heard from but those ties just on commodities and food and trade between Brazil and the United States are incredibly strong. I would 
be shocked if they uh, came in in support of something that a lot of people are hoping will happen with this BRICS gold back system. I mean, that Brazil, U.S., listen, when it's cold in one, when it's cold in the U.S., it's warm and, and food is growing in, in Brazil and vice versa. So that, that trade between those two countries remain to be strong. I just don't see, I don't see Brazil kind of turning their back on that. No, nobody's going to be in a rush to turn their back on the States. America's still, you know, it's, it's, the greatest country in the world, <laughs> even without, even with all of our flaws, uh, Dominic. Uh, you've you mentioned Edinburgh. You actually have a show coming up here. I saw in Edinburgh. Yeah, if if any of your listeners happen to be in, or viewers happen to be in the Edinburgh Festival this year, I'm doing a lecture. I do these lecture with funny bits in the room in which Adam Smith completed uh, Wealth of Nations, the great book. It's in his old house, and I do lect. I'm going to do a lecture about gold this year about the. Uh, the past and the present and the future of gold. Yeah. Uh, beautiful city to do it. Uh, so please come. Yeah. And Oh, it's a great, it's fantastic. That, that's at the Edinburgh Fringe, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. It's a fantastic occasion. And if you've never been, I urge you, I urge you all to come. And this year, I mean, accommodation is very expensive, but it is a, it is a great thing to do. And, um, but yeah, if your listeners are interested in me and my work, flyingfrisbee.com is the place to go theflyingfrisbee.com that's my uh, substack where i write my newsletter and please uh, subscribe to that and there's a free option and a paid option and obviously i want you to pick the paid option but if you go for the free option i'll be happy with that <laughs> uh have you ever visited the library of mistakes up there in edinburgh no but i know him russell napier and um uh I, in fact i'm going to go this year i'll make a point of it dominic thanks so much for your time it's great to have you on. Uh, best of luck with the show. Uh, it's, it was, you know, I hope we can do it again. And, uh, you know, cheers to you and uh, all your work. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Trevor. And it's been fun. And we seem to be losing um, connection at the end. But I, I blame you because my connect. I've just got a new broadband put in and it's super fast. <laughs> that's that's fair that's fair okay dominic thank you so much that's dominic frisbee everybody and that's a wrap here this week on the podcast have a great weekend be well the information presented should not be considered investment advice mining stock daily and affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions